Well, please do take your Bibles and join me in the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, looking at verses 37 through 47. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs out there, you can find our text on page 910, the very bottom of it, bleeding over onto 911. The title of our sermon is Converts, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are repent, devotion, and added. Well, we arrived this morning at our uh, sixth, if I did the math right, our sixth and final introductory sermon to the book of Acts. I told you when we began that the introduction to this book would last a while. Uh, well, here we are, uh, really getting to the very end of, of, the, of Luke's introduction to this book, here at the end of, of chapter 2. And so far, we have seen Luke introduce uh, some very important themes that are going to resurface again and again in various forms uh, as we make our way through this wonderful book. We've seen things like the importance of the Old Testament as it concerns understanding the, the most sort of significant meanings to be drawn from the book of Acts. We've already seen in chapters 1 and 2 the Old Testament quoted several times. We've also seen the central focus that Luke is going to place on the arrival of God's kingdom through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, and, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, the pouring out of His Spirit upon the disciples at Pentecost. Luke has also directed our gaze to the advance of God's kingdom in all the earth. Right? And that kingdom advances, how? By the power that the Spirit would supply to His people as He would indwell them and unite them to Jesus by faith, fitting them for priestly service. And for the past two weeks, we've been looking at Luke's account of what happened on the day of Pentecost. Right, the last day of the Feast of Weeks. And in short, what we saw was that it, Pentecost really is the final uh, stage or the final moment, the final act of redemption in the fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation of the new covenant, the new creation that the Messiah would bring. The idea is that Jesus, right, having kept the law of God perfectly for His people in order to overturn the curse of Adam, He was crucified paying for the sins of his people. And so in his death, he ransoms us from sin. But Peter makes clear in his sermon in chapter 2, verse 24, that death couldn't hold him. And so he rose from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. Psalm 16, for instance, which Peter quotes. And then he ascended into heaven. The act of which we actually saw in Acts chapter 1. And so, Peter concludes from all this, Jesus, being exalted to the right hand of God and receiving the promised gift of the Holy Spirit, He poured out His Spirit upon the church in a fiery baptism of salvation and judgment. Right? It indicated salvation for those who believe in Christ, but judgment for those who reject Him. And we saw this evidenced in the, the mighty works of God that were proclaimed in tongues that a multilingual crowd 
gathered on the day of Pentecost could understand. In other words, God's salvation was headed for the ends of the earth. No longer was it going to center around the Old Testament and its or the Old Covenant and the Old Testament practices that had been established for ancient Israel. Peter concluded the sermon she saw last week with a clear proclamation of the results of Jesus' work. Jesus is now the man enthroned on God's throne to rule over his kingdom as he defeats every last one of his enemies, making them a footstool. So today, what we're going to see is the, the response, in particular the initial response that is, that's made by many in the crowd who are present for this sermon. So I want to read verses, um, actually I'm going to read 36, which sort of is his summary statement of all of it and the point of all of it, 36 through 47. So he concludes, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and those And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. want to uh, unpack these verses for us uh, in three under three headings. First, in uh, verses 37 through 40, we're going to see uh, the, the initial response, the crowd's initial response. Second, in verses 41 and in 47, we're going to see in the midst of all this, the Lord's work as crucial to what's going on here. And third, in verses 42 through 46, we'll see the disciples Uh, devotion in the early days. So we see the initial response of the crowd, we see the work of the Lord, and we see the disciples' devotion. Look with me in the first place in verses 37 through 40, where we see the crowd's uh, response to the sermon. Luke tells us here that he says they, meaning many of the devout Jews and proselytes who had come to Jerusalem for Passover and the Feast of Weeks, who were there present on Pentecost, Uh, They were nearby when the exalted Jesus poured out his spirit upon the disciples. Luke tells us 
they respond to what they hear from Peter with a question. They ask Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? They had been cut to the heart and they had been captured by Peter's words. And so it is worth mentioning here, worth considering, before we look at how Peter responds to their question, I want to ask a question. What is the purpose of preaching? What is the purpose of the sermon, or what is the aim of the sermon that Peter preaches here? Why does he preach it? What does he hope to accomplish? What did he want to see happen among his listeners? Was Peter aiming primarily at intellectual stimulation? Was his primary hope that they merely grow in knowledge concerning the events of Pentecost? For example, what if in response to Peter's sermon, the crowd had said something like this? Oh, okay, Peter. Yeah, Hey, we totally didn't know all that. We didn't see how that stuff that Joel and David had said, we didn't understand how it connected to uh, this man, Jesus. And so everything that just happened with that sound of the wind and the, the, the tongues of fire and the, the, the multiple languages being, that was really confusing. Thank you for clearing that up. Now we understand. And then they just go on their way and get back to whatever it was they were doing. Would, would Peter have been satisfied? Would he have said, Whew, a job well done. Their minds have been instructed. They understand now. Of course not. Consider what one commentator says on this question. He says, Peter's speech is not only about testifying to the resurrection and consequent lordship of Christ. Jesus' resurrection by God implies accusation as well as fulfillment. What, is, what do I mean in, by quoting this statement? To see this point, it's helpful to look back at what Peter actually says, which is why I read verse 36 here, even though we talked about most of it last week. But we didn't really address the very end of it, and I want to do that here. How does he actually end what he says? Now, arguably, you say he doesn't, this isn't supposed to be the end. They kind of interrupt him here. But what does he say here in verse 36? Peter does not get to the resurrection and its implication about Christ now being the vindicated Lord and stop. Right? Verse 36 does not stop. You should let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, period. That isn't the end. He gets there. But then he goes on to accuse his audience of murdering this Lord and Christ. Peter's summary sentence to all that he says, the conclusion, the application, the point of arrival of all of it, he ends with an accusation of the people, not with the coronation of Christ. Why? Well, it's, it, we see it in the response of the crowd. It is to arouse this response. Because what is it that they say? They are cut to the heart and they interrupt him to say, what should we do then, brothers? 
Michael Ove, who I quoted a minute ago, he, this is what he says. He goes on. He says, rhetorically, the significant point in the speech is what Peter finally asked the audience to do. Accepting the resurrection is a step on the way to this, but it is not the final destination. The command is to repent. The audience is not merely invited to accept the proposition that Jesus is Lord. It is told to repent. So what is the, the point of preaching? Well, preaching, as we will see, as we see here and we will see worked out in Acts, and really as it's born in all of Scripture, is not a mere conveyance of information. When the apostles preach throughout this book, never is it their biggest hope that those listening simply increase in knowledge. Growing in knowledge is a component of preaching, but it is not the goal. It is not the, the main goal of preaching. Right? Consider the phrase that Luke inserts here. They were cut to the heart. That, speaking at a human level, is the goal of preaching. The glory of God, of course, is the goal of preaching. But as it concerns a desired response, the desire is not merely that you would understand, not merely that we would grasp it better and that we would be able to answer a question on a test or in Sunday school, but that we would be moved in the depths and the inner recesses of our being by what we hear. That we would be moved to repent. That we would be moved to trust in God more. To seek greater communion with Him and with one another. And so as we work through this passage this morning, ask yourself this question. What effect is this sermon having on me? Right? What is the effect of this sermon and this Word of God on me now? Is this sermon primarily, or God forbid, exclusively a transfer of information about Acts 2, 37-47? Is it just a transfer of information into your brain, through your, your ears and eyes, so that you walk away more knowledgeable about this text, but you haven't been moved at all to love God any more than you did when you arrived this morning. That's one possible option of the effect this sermon has. The other, my prayer, is that you would be moved to hate sin, to love holiness, to love God, to have greater affection for the people in this room and people outside of this room having a greater longing for the evangelization of lost sinners. So that's what we want. What is the the instruction? What does Peter tell them to do? What should we do, they ask. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Everyone who the Lord our God calls to Himself. A few comments about Peter's reply here should 
suffice. First, though he doesn't command them to believe here, they clearly do since they are identified as believers in verse 44. And we're told that they received his word in verse 41. But really, faith and repentance, they involve one another. You, you can't have one without the other. The call to faith is a call to repentance. And the call to repentance is a call to faith. It, it seems that Peter is emphasizing repentance here because he wants to highlight one very specific sin in particular for which his specific audience needs to repent. And that is the murder of the Son of God. He tells them to repent, which, right, to, to change your mind, to turn away from, to turn away from your sin. And then the, op- the opposite side of the coin, to believe in Christ. And he tells them to be baptized. John Stott says this, Uh, He says that faith and repentance are signified by baptism in Christ's name, which means by His authority, acknowledging His claims, subscribing to His doctrines, engaging in His service, and relying on His merits. They were to publicly identify with this Jesus whom they had crucified. In other words, Peter is not calling them to mere personal, private thoughts and feelings about Jesus. He is calling them to publicly identify, as I just said, with the Lord Jesus and His people. To lay down their claim on their own lives and to follow in the footsteps of Christ. Imagine the humility required of a person to have clamored for the death of this man in but, what, two months later? Not quite. To be baptized in His name. We see in verse 40, Peter's sermon he, it doesn't, right, he doesn't end here. We're not really told. We're not told the rest of it. The summary statement of the rest of Peter's sermon is simply save yourselves from this crooked generation. And he continues to exhort them with words like that. In other words, all of it, he says commitment to the Messiah means commitment to the Messiah's people, which we see worked out in the following verses. So there is personal gain in following Peter's words here. Through faith, they would find forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin. They would receive the Holy Spirit. right? The the regenerating, indwelling, uniting, and transforming power of the Spirit we see here, was not for the apostles alone. It was not for the 120 disciples gathered on Pentecost alone. It was far-reaching. The Spirit was given, was to be given to God's people as a whole. And it was, 
he says, for them who were present that day, the promise is for you. It's also for subsequent generations, for your children, and it's for those at the very ends of the earth. Anyone who is far off, the one qualifier is, it must be those whom the Lord calls to Himself. Which brings us to our second point this morning, the work of God. We see it in verse 41, really it's in verse 39 as well, but we see it clearly in verse 41 and verse 47. And it's really just the end of those verses that I want to address here in the second point, because both of them make something abundantly clear, especially when you take them together. God is the sovereign Lord over the building up of His church. We're told in verse 41 that 3,000 souls were added that day. And then in verse 47, we're told that it was God that was adding to the number of the disciples day by day. He added day by day those who were being saved. So who builds the church? From where does the increase come? It comes from God. This is, the Apostle's Paul, this is the Apostle Paul's very point in 1 Corinthians 3, 6. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, what? But God gave the increase. And so immediately, a point of application fa- faces us in the second point. And it is this, what do you believe in this regard? And as we consider what we believe here, I want, to, I want our minds to run along two thoughts. Two lines of thought here we're going to consider. So kind of two points of application, I suppose. First, do we fully grasp that it is God and not us that gives the increase? Right? Every week, when I or or one of the elders, when we step into this pulpit every week, on whose strength am I relying? Am I trusting in my time in the study, my uh, ability to turn a phrase, or my grasp of the text, my gifts, whatever they may be, or am I trusting in the sovereign God to work among us as His Word is preached? And not just here in the sermon every week, but all of the various ministries in which we uh, that we do here, right? Sunday school, or student ministry, or VBS, or the Marrow Institute, our small groups, our discipleship groups, and all the, the different things that we do, our, our Sunday evening service. Whose strength is it that gives the increase, that blesses these things? Do we expect these things to flourish because we work really hard at them? Do we expect them to flourish because of what we do or because of what God does? Now, of course, this doesn't remove obligation. It doesn't remove the obligation from me to prepare diligently throughout the week for the, the sermon on Sunday. I don't, just, I don't get to say, like, well, hey, God's got to do the work anyway, right? So I'm just going to hang out. Relax, take it easy all week, show up on Sunday, and just trust the Lord to do His work. 
Right? It doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow other ministry leaders or coordinators to slack off. It doesn't, it doesn't allow us, right? You now or me, if someone else is preaching, it doesn't allow us to be lazy or apathetic while we're listening. Right? Think about what happened when they asked him this question. Hey, brothers, Peter, fellas, the rest of you, what should we do? Peter doesn't say, hey, God's sovereign. You're not. So there's nothing you can do. Just hope that God will save you, perhaps. Nor does he say this, hey, why are you asking me? Christ is the sovereign Lord. Go and ask him. I can't tell you what to do. No, he answers them. Repent. Turn from your sins. And and so it is with us. God is sovereign, but we must absolutely remember that we are responsible to respond appropriately. Namely, with faith to the gospel message and to live faithfully before God. So that's the one line of thinking, right? Is it me or is it God in whom I trust? The, the second line of thought, it goes like this. A moment ago, I asked, do we expect our ministry here to flourish because of how much work we put into it or because God is working in it? And when I asked it that way and I asked it then, I was focusing on any potential self-sufficiency that might reside in our hearts. Right? But we can ask that same question with a slightly different emphasis and we get to a different place where we examine whether or not there's any God deficiency in our hearts. Right? So we could say, do we expect our ministry to flourish because God is working in it? Right? Do I actually believe that the ministry here at Redeemer Baptist Church will grow? Will be blessed? That God will, in fact, give the increase? Right? Our mission statement, for example, which conveniently right here on the very front page of our bulletins, says that one of the things we are committed to in our mission is to see transformed lives. Like the church saw in the early days of following Pentecost. Now, I don't mean that we will have 3,000 people converted in a single sermon here, or that we will have any specific number of people converted here. God alone knows those things. But what I do mean is this. Do we, do I, do you actually expect God to add to our number, to work in our midst, to bless what we are doing here in Rinkin, Georgia? In your life, in your children's lives, in your neighbors' lives, do you actually expect that? Think about the unbelievers in your life. Think about someone in particular and perhaps pray for them right now in this very moment. But as you think about them and pray for them, consider this. Do you ever tell them about Jesus? Do you ever invite them to come to church with you? I know many of you do, but if you don't, why not? Is it Perhaps because at some level you struggle to believe that God is actually interested in working in you and through you? Is it because you find yourself tempted to doubt that God is still in the business 
of adding to his church? If so, let me encourage you with this. One of the major themes that we will find throughout the book of Acts is that God not only is he capable of adding to his church, but he actually does it. It wasn't just on the day of Pentecost that God added to his church. Day by day, we're told, he added to their number those who were being saved. We see this theme recur again in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And so, brothers and sisters, let us take heart. God is building his church. We are an example of that. He's building it here at Redeemer Baptist Church, but He's also building it all around the world. And so take heart and know that God is working in the world. So that's the work of God. That's the response of the early initial response of the crowds, but that's not where Luke leaves us. He, he tells us before he transitions into some more kind of beat-by-beat narrative of what's happening um, as the gospel goes forth, he, he gives us this summary section in 42-47 through 47 of, of what the, those early days in the life of the church were like. And there's a lot of different things that are said about it, a lot of different... Um, Thoughts have been offered on, on these verses in Acts 2. Um, but I think it's, it's fairly simple what Luke is accomplishing here for us. He's, he's helping us to see the devotion of the disciples. And their devotion runs particularly in two ways. They're devoted to God and they're devoted to one another. So we're going to look at each of those. In their devotion to God, we see that they were committed to learning and to worshiping. They were devoted, we're told, to the apostles' teaching and fellowship. You know, earlier we said that preaching is not aimed at mere intellectual acquisition. But it's not opposed to intellectual acquisition. It's not anti-intellectual. Jesus says in John 8 that we shall know the truth and the truth shall set us free. We need to know things about what God has said. And so we see here these first converts, the, the disciples of Jesus in the early days were devoted to learning Christ from the apostles. The apostles who had been with Jesus, who had seen Him at His baptism, who had seen Him at the the Mount of Transfiguration, who had been with Him in the garden, who had seen Him in His crucifixion, who had witnessed His resurrection and His ascension, who had received His Spirit. They learned from them. And as they learned, we see the apostles performed many signs, many wonders and signs among them. And, And this ultimately we would say is it served to authenticate and validate the teaching of the apostles as new revelation from God. I mean, imagine an entire new order had come in. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had been done, or the Old Testament had been done away with. The Old Covenant had been done away with. There was a, a new order, a new creation, a new covenant had been established. 
And so these witnesses to Christ had their words from God validated. These are the words of God. And their words are preserved for us in summary form, sometimes quoted, but they're preserved for us in the Scripture, in the New Testament. And so for Christians today, what does it mean for us? Or how can we be devoted to the apostles' teaching? What's well, by being devoted to our New Testament? But if we're going to be devoted to the New Testament and the disciples' teaching, we have to understand, as we've said, they're devoted, they're committed to the Old Testament. And so if we want to understand the teaching of the apostles, if we want to be devoted to it, we have to understand and be devoted to the Old Testament as well. We need both Testaments because they give clarity and they instruct us regarding the other. So they're a learning church, but they're also a worshiping church. We see this in verse 42 when he says the, the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now there's some debate about this, but this seems to be when he says the breaking of bread and the prayers, he's likely referencing the Lord's Supper and prayer services here. Though at the time the Lord's Supper was likely a, just part of a larger meal which they shared, but what we see here in verse 42 and down in verse 46, that they were, they're worshiping in their homes and in the temple. They're breaking bread together. They are at some level uh, observing the Lord's Supper together. They are praying together. And they're being taught. They're worshiping together. And how does Luke describe these things? In verse 43 and 46, we see that fear as well as joy marked the early church's devotion to the Lord. It says, awe or fear came upon every soul through these many signs and wonders that were being done. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So they're devoted to the Lord. They're learning Christ. They're observing His supper. They're praying together. They're, they're fearing God and joyful in the Lord, but they're also devoted to one another. Right? They're not just devoted to the apostles' teaching, but to their fellowship. 1 John 1.3 says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13.14 that there is fellowship with the Spirit. So connecting Acts 2.42... With these other texts, John Stott perceptibly writes, this fellowship, the, disciple, the Apostles' Fellowship, is a Trinitarian fellowship. It is our common share in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they fellowshiped with God and with one another, and we're told that they shared with one another. They shared themselves with one another. They voluntarily held all things in common. They sold their possessions to make sure that any one of them who was in need received the care and provision required. Now, a lot gets made out of, out of these texts, especially uh, if you think about economics and political arrangements and things like that. You know, the, um, what did they say? The, the early church were communist or something like that. Socialists, right? They, um, but the point here, to be sure, is not that we must sell everything that we have and put all the money in one big pot and distribute it out to every church member 
automatically. That's not even what's happening here if we pay attention to what's happening here. We're told they were selling and distributing the proceeds. Right? What that means is that while this happened regularly, even continuously, it was ongoing as the, need, as the needs arose. It wasn't a once and for all put into a pile and just handed out. We see the, the apostles even respecting private property and things like that over in chapter 5. But what this passage does for us, rather than call us to something like socialism, besides that, everything is done voluntarily here, but what it does is that it sets for us an example of devotion. The devotion that they had for one another. The care that they had for one another. And so the question is, do we care for one another? Are we devoted to the good and the well-being of the people in this room? I, th- I think we are. I think this is something we do well as a church. But it's always good and right that we ask ourselves thoughtful, probing questions. And so, again, we ask, are you devoted to the fellowship of God and His people? Are you devoted to thanksgiving and to generosity? But how might someone describe our church, I wonder? Particularly as it, as, as it relates to the way we relate to one another. Let me n- nearly close with this. I want to say, I've got one thought here, and then I want to offer one a final point of op- application, then we'll be done. My prayer is that it would be an ever-increasingly accurate description of Redeemer Baptist Church to say something like this. Well, if you want to be among people who know and love the Scriptures and love the God of whom they speak and put them to full use in their lives, and you want to be among people who truly enjoy being around one another, they're always sharing meals together. They're always sharing things. They pretty much share everything. If you are in need, you can count on them. Then that's the place to be. That is what I hope for us. I'd like to close by returning to Peter's command to the murderers of Jesus to repent. At first glance, his exhortation to repent probably seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Yeah, they should repent. They murdered Jesus. But have we really fully appreciated the weight of that offer to the murderers of Jesus Christ? Here's what I mean. Peter's command to the murderers of Jesus to repent and the promise that they shall receive forgiveness, it means that the people who murdered Jesus could repent and receive forgiveness. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that one of those out-of-this-world passages that probably just slip by us when we're not paying attention? Yeah, of course. Repent. Yeah, yeah. You, you crucified Christ. Of course you should repent. But if we ever stop to ask, like, isn't it wild that they could? And did? Have you 
stopped recently or ever to think about this. Yes, okay, Jesus dying on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But maybe that's just Jesus being Jesus. Jesus as an example to us of forgiving those who sin against us. Maybe that's all that is. But Peter is clear here. Hey, you guys who executed the Son of God, repent And if you do so, you will receive forgiveness from God. And so, the question for you, for me, for us is this. What is it then that you have done, my friend, that keeps you from repenting and trusting in Jesus to save you from your sins? Whatever it is, is it worse than murdering the Son of God? The one whom God made both Lord and Christ? Now surely as sinners, we are all guilty in the murder of the Son of God. But at the end of the day, whatever your sin is, I implore you, as these men and women did here, who heard Peter, if you have not done this ever before, I urge you and beg you now, nail your sin to the cross, turn from it, and look fully in your Savior's face as He looks at you and grants you this forgiveness. Don't wait another day. Don't wait another hour. Don't wait another minute. Fly to Jesus now and be saved. And for all of us who have already done that, let us continue to do that. Continue to live a life of repentance and faith. Receiving with gladness this forgiveness of our sins as we are welcomed into the new creation that has begun in the Lord Jesus.